All right, Brother Matthew here. I am reteaching a sermon that I preached at our congregation. Actually, it was last yesterday. And we had the power go out in the middle of the broadcast. And so there was a lot of commotion. And the video didn't really take. And so I'm here doing a reteaching of my sermon. And I thought about several titles that I could give to this sermon. Um, I think I put, What is Gehenna? last night um, but I think I'd like to title it Is Hell Real? Is Hell Real? Question mark. With the emphasis lying on the traditional concept and view of hell. We're going to begin in Matthew 5 verse 22. We're backtracking. We've made it up in our series where we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount through verse 30 made it Matthew 5, 1 through 30. But we're going to backtrack today to spend some time on a particular subject that doesn't get systematically taught on a whole lot. And that is in verse 22 where Yeshua says, But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin, but whoever says, You moron, will be subject to Hellfire. That is a compound word here in the HCSB. The King James Version uses hell fire. The World English Bible here uses will be subject to the fire of Gehenna. Back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I first began to study this subject, I went through the Sermon on the Mount and I saw this hell fire and I decided to look it up in my Strong's Concordance. Back then I didn't have an app on my phone or even a, a little handheld Franklin Bible computer. I remember when I got one of those Franklins I was so excited but all I had was the big you know Strong's Concordance and I opened it up and I looked up this word hell. It's actually two words here hell and fire. Fire means fire. <laughs> hell is the word Gehenna here in Matthew 5.22 and it's also in Matthew 5.29 and Matthew 5.30. Both of those uses of the word hell is the Greek word Gehenna. And so I was wondering, what is this Gehenna? What is this particularly referring to or talking about? As I grew up in church, we weren't taught systematically on the doctrine of hell, but it was mentioned in some of the sermons that would be preached in the church when the preacher, whoever it was, was talking about the final judgment of the wicked. And I remember phrases like the, a devil's hell or hell fire and brimstone or uh, the lake of fire. Phrases like that were used and in my mind what I pictured through the teaching that I heard, even though it wasn't systematic or wasn't really exegetically taught on, the picture was that if somebody was to die and they were an unbeliever or an unrepentant sinner that they would immediately go to hell that was under the ground where Satan was in charge of hell and they would begin to burn and that they would burn there for eternity without end. Um, that was the picture that I had in my mind and I think that was what the preachers that I listened to believed in their mind because that's certainly what they portrayed 
as he came over. Now, obviously, I didn't think that a person's body went to hell, but there was some kind of separation of soul from body or spirit from body, and the person had consciousness and went down to hell in soul or spirit form, and then began to be burned and engulfed in flames. Once again, wasn't really ever shown that in Scripture. I now know the verses that some people try to go to, like in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Revelation. That's the main ones. But I wasn't really ever taught that from Scripture. And I think a lot of it stemmed from some things that I had seen on the cartoons. As I watched a cartoon called Tom and Jerry on Saturday morning. So I remember seeing Tom, the cat, chasing Jerry, the mouse, and sometimes Tom would do something that would cause him to die, and all of a sudden you'd see this phantom part separate from his body, and it would go down low below the ground, and then there was this satanic, demonic-like character with a pitchfork that would poke Tom's behind, and he would go up and down over this flaming fire pot. And I saw a meme the other day um, with this uh, little baby girl. And on the meme, she was saying, Who else grew up thinking that Satan lives under the ground? Well, when I saw the meme, I chuckled because I raised my hand. Yeah, when I was a kid, I thought that too. I thought Satan lived under the ground. And I didn't want to dig too far. Or else I might hit him, right? <laughs> So I thought people die and either they immediately went to heaven or possibly went to hell if they were wicked and unbelieving or unrepentant. Satan was in charge, he lives down there, torture was ongoing and it had no end, it would last throughout all eternity. And sometimes I wondered that if some of my family members died, whether next of kin or you know distant relatives and they were unbelievers or unrepentant, were they burning right now? You know, as I'm going about living my life as a child or now as an adult, are some of my unbelieving family members that have died, are they burning? Are they being tortured in flames? So what about this Gehenna? Is hell real? That's the question that I'm going to begin to try to unpack and answer in this series within a series as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Is hell like I was taught? You know, when I became about the age of 15 to 16, I feel that that was when Yahweh renewed my mind and renewed my heart. And I was thankful to be raised in a covenant family, a family that was uh, a family of believers, great parents, great Christian parents. But it wasn't probably until the age of 15 to 16 when I felt a tug from the Holy Spirit on my life. And I've never been the same since. I'm not a perfect man, and I have my struggles even to this day. But I constantly... I'm in the Word, and I can't get enough of studying the Bible. And so when I began to study the Bible from that age and even until now, I like to reevaluate things that I was taught. Um, that doesn't mean that I judge right from wrong with a standard of, well, if that's what I was taught, it must be wrong. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is I want to go back and reevaluate things I was taught that I have never studied out for myself. Some of those things in my studies I have found, okay, I was taught accurately. 
taught correctly by a pastor or a parent or a grandparent. However, other things that I have reevaluated that I was taught, I have found out that I can't find any validity or foundation for that particular teaching in the Bible. And so, it's back to the drawing board on that subject. I have to go back and see what does the Bible teach about a particular subject. And in this regards, what does the Bible teach about the subject of hell? So I remember beginning my study and looking up the word hell in Matthew 5, verses 22, 29, and 30, and finding the word Gehenna, I realized then that it was a compound word from two words, gay in Hebrew, meaning a valley or a narrow gorge, and hinnom, which means lamentation or weeping, but it was probably, according to Joshua chapter 15, which is the first use of hinnom, Hinnom was probably the name of a prestigious or popular Jebusite. The Jebusites were a group of people uh, that were um, enveloped in with the Canaanites whom Yahweh had given uh, their land to due to the wickedness of those nations. Very, very grave wickedness. Uh, Jebusites and Perizzites and all of the Canaanites. Okay, There was a valley there in this location of Hinnom that became known as the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom or the Valley of Hinnom. So if you put the two words together, Gay and Hinnom, you get Gehenna. And that is the word that is used in Matthew chapter 5 by Yeshua. Yeshua actually uses it as is recorded in the Gospels 11 times. And there's only one time that it's used outside of the Gospels. And that is in the letter that Yaakov or James wrote to the tribes of Israel that were dispersed and scattered uh, abroad where he talks about how that the tongue is set on the fire of hell. Now, that, in other words, we can, with our tongue, we can speak words that are hellish um, and bring destruction upon people. So I looked up the word hell in Thayer's lexicon and Thayer said that hell is the place of the future punishment called Gehenna or Gehenna of Fire this was originally the valley of Hinnom, south of Jerusalem, where the filth and dead animals of the city were cast out and burned, a fit symbol of the wicked and their future destruction. Strong's definitions told us that the word was of Hebrew origin, defines it as the valley of Hinnom, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, Gehenna, or Gehinnom, a valley of Jerusalem, used figuratively as a name for the place or state of everlasting punishment. So, in those definitions, I did not see anything that said eternal conscious torment where people are in hell right now and they are being tortured and they will remain tortured throughout eternity. What I then did is went to certain Bible dictionaries. Now, at the time, I did not have many Bible dictionaries. I was just starting my library. I have got a ton of Bible dictionaries. As a matter of fact, I, I have a few back there on, I think I have a few on that shelf. I don't know if those are any dictionaries or, or commentaries or, or what have you, but I've got a lot of Bible dictionaries now. And I, have, I tell people that whoever inherits my library when I die, hopefully they're a good Bible student because they're going to have a, a really good inheritance in regards to resource material for a Bible study. 
So one of the Bible dictionaries that I had was the Smith's, Smith's Bible Dictionary. And I had a little Smith's Bible Dictionary because my father-in-law, who I studied the Bible with a lot, he had one. And he said, you need to get you a Smith's Bible Dictionary. It's good for uh, looking up things and understanding concepts in the scriptures. And so I bought one at the local Christian bookstore. So here is my Smith's Bible Dictionary. And I don't know if you can see it or not, but there on the bottom is right in there is the reference to Hinnom. On this one it's on page 249 and I'll just read it under Hinnom it says Valley of Hinnom otherwise called the Valley of the Sun or Children of Hinnom a deep and narrow ravine with steep rocky sides to the south and west of Jerusalem separating Mount Zion to the north from the Hill of Evil Council and the sloping rocky plateau of the plain of Rephaim to the south. The earliest mention of the Valley of Hinnom is in Joshua 15.8-18.16, where the boundary line between the tribes of Judah and Benjamin is described as passing along the bed of the ravine. On the southern brow, overlooking the valley at its eastern extremity, Solomon erected high places for Moloch, 1 Kings 11.7, whose horrid rites were revived from time to time in the same vicinity by the later idolatrous kings. Ahaz and Manasseh made their children pass through the fire in this valley. It gives some references, 2 Kings 16.3, 2 Chronicles 28.3, 2 Chronicles 33.6. And the fiendish custom of infant sacrifice to the fire gods seems to have been kept up in Tophet, which was another name for this place. It's interesting, in some of the commentaries that I've recently been studying, some of them say that the, the root word of Tophet, Toph, refers to the sound of the drumbeat that got louder and louder to mask the screams of the little infant children that were being offered to this deity, Moloch. And it was said that the idol of Moloch had these outstretched arms that were heated up and then the infant was laid in the arms to burn to the god, to that particular deity. And the drumbeat, boom, boom, would get louder and louder to cover up the screams of the infants as they died in the fire. Uh, it sounds horrific, um, and we wonder how anyone could do something like that, but yet we do have a practice akin to that in modern-day America and around the world in abortion. Now, these people were offering up their children uh, to in the fire or through the fire to Moloch um, after they were outside of the womb, but nowadays people think that it is legal or I guess it is legal by our state and, and country law to kill a little baby inside of the womb in some places even up to right before he or she is birthed. So you can see the baby, eyes, nose, mouth, ears moving around, little arms and legs right there in the ultrasound. And then you can go in there and take the baby's life. So that's just as horrific. Um, if we wonder how people could do something this horrific, uh, in essence, people are still doing the same thing today. Let's continue on. Uh, to put an end to these abominations, the place was polluted by Josiah, that's one of the righteous kings and the nation of Judah, who rendered it ceremonially unclean by spreading over it human bones and other corruptions. It gives the verse references, from which time it appears to have become the common cesspool of the city, into which its sewage was conducted to be carried off by the waters of the Kidron. 
from its ceremonial defilement and from the detested and abominable fire of Moloch, if not from the supposed ever-burning funeral piles. The later Jews applied the name of this valley, Gehinnom, Gehenna, land of Hinnom, to denote the place of eternal torment. In this sense, the word is used by our Lord, and he gives several references there in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I want you to take notice of that last part where Mr. Smith here mentions eternal torment. So, when I first began to study this, was I looked up the references that Smith gave after he mentioned eternal torment. And I couldn't find anything in those references about eternal torment. Now, as I'll get into this in this lesson and in future lessons, I do believe that the judgment of the wicked is in eternal judgment. And by eternal, I'm using that word in the sense of it is without end. Uh, there is no resurrection from final judgment, the final judgment of the wicked. I couldn't find eternal torment in these texts. As a matter of fact, one particular text that I looked up was Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. The subject is persecution. Yeshua is speaking to his disciples beginning in 10, verse 1, and he's telling them, listen, there's going to be some persecution when you preach the message that I'm sending you out to preach. But don't be afraid of people who persecute you, and don't be afraid even if it comes to the point where they are going to kill your body. Matthew 10:28, don't fear those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell or in Gehenna, which is the word there. So I thought to myself, what does it mean to kill the body? To kill the body means that the body ceases to have activity. There is no more consciousness of the body, and the body is then buried or placed in the tomb, and decomposition begins. So if killing of the body means no more consciousness of the body, then what does the killing of the soul mean? Consciousness still exists? It doesn't make sense. It made more sense to me that the killing of the soul is akin to the killing of the body. So don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul and then, on the flip side, but rather fear him who is able to destroy, destroy is used as a synonym with kill, destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. To me, that sounded like the punishment of the wicked was not eternal conscious torment, but rather eternal death, eternal destruction, never to live again, but not conscious where you're in torment, but rather the punishment would be death. I also saw this in Matthew 5, 29 through 30. Look at Matthew 5, 29 through 30. I know we talked about this in my last lesson on adultery. But in Matthew 5, 29, it says, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, there's a meaning to this. I don't think Yeshua is literally telling us to stick our finger in our eye, gouge it out, and then throw it away. If you remember, I mentioned that one of the reasons I know that is because he mentions the right eye. So is the right eye the only eye that can sin? And if you cover it up, you can't sin with 
your left eye. I don't think that's what Yeshua was talking about. So right eye and right hand, I think, refers to thinking, viewing, and practicing. You know, we do things with our hands, right? So I think he's saying no matter what it is, something or some person that gets in the way of your righteousness, you need to remove that from your life. Nothing is worth going to hell over. But the the literal part that he speaks helps us to understand what he's meaning. And so, yes, it would be better to lose just an eye or a hand. I think the KJV says, better for just your eye to perish or your hand to perish than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. So what it sounded like to me there again was that if you lost an eye or a hand would mean that it ceased to exist. You didn't have any more sight out of that eye or movement out of that hand because they were gone. The parallel is better that that happen than for your whole body to be gone. Your whole body to be in Gehenna. It didn't sound to me like your whole body to be thrown into this fiery lake and then tormented and burned forever and ever. It sounded like that the body would be destroyed in Gehenna. So I moved on from there to studying more about the Valley of Hinnom, and I came across one text in Jeremiah. I'm going to turn there, the book of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 7. And this kind of goes into a little bit of detail on what Smith's Bible Dictionary talked about in regards to the child sacrifice that took place in the fire as some of the apostate Israelites were burning their children in the fire to the god or the deity Moloch. Jeremiah 7, verses 30 through 34. I'm reading out of the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It says, For the Judeans have done what is evil in my sight. This is Yahweh's declaration. They have set up their detestable things in the house that is called by my name and defiled it. They have built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Hinnom, that's the word Gehenna, in order to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, a thing I did not command, I never entertained the thought. You can cross-reference Jeremiah 19, 2-6 here. Therefore take note, days are coming, Yahweh's declaration, when this place will no longer be called Tophet and the valley of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. Tophet will become a cemetery because there will be no other burial place. The corpses of these people will become food for the birds of the sky and for the wild animals of the land with no one to scare them off. I will remove from the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem the sound of joy and gladness and the voices of the bridegroom and the bride for the land will become a desolate waste. So here we have a description of what was taking place in apostate Israel and the child sacrifice to Moloch and it was done in the valley of Hinnom and Yahweh said there will come a time when it will not be called the valley of Hinnom anymore but the valley of slaughter and he mentions the slaughtering of the people that are committing these grave sins now in Yeshua's day Gehenna existed south of the city Jerusalem and there was this narrow valley or narrow gorge and it was basically the refuse or garbage dump for the city in which were thrown 
refuse, waste, sewage, the bodies of dead animals. Some authorities even say maybe the bodies of dead criminals was thrown in here and there was this smoldering fire. It wasn't like it was these big old high flames that were coming up, you know, 20, 30 feet, but this constant smoldering fire that never went out. Constantly it was burning and things were getting thrown in there day after day after day. And then there was smoke coming up off of this valley. And Yeshua used this word to describe what we would call hell in regards to his teaching in the first century. And this, I think, is what Yahweh is talking about. One day it will be called the Valley of Slaughter. And I believe he's pointing to the final judgment. There is a possibility that there could also be a fulfillment in AD 70 when the Roman armies came in and ransacked Jerusalem. And according to Josephus, there is a record that a lot of the refuse and even people were eventually moved to the Valley of Hinnom and there they were burned up. This is something else that I started looking at here according to Jeremiah chapter 7. I then learned that there were three views on hell. I remember when I was a kid and even a young adult, sometimes I thought there was only one view on everything and we just had to believe that view and why couldn't everybody see that view? But ignorance I guess was was bliss but the more that I started to study and uh, do research on a variety of different topics I realized that there are a lot of times good learned scholars good learned men that study the Bible and study ancient uh, Hebrew and ancient Near Eastern resources and they come to different conclusions they don't always agree and I found out there were three major views on hell within Christianity and the first one, and the predominant one, what we would call the traditional view, is eternal conscious torment. That is most common, and it believes that people will burn or be tormented forever without end. Most people holding to that view teach that people are burning right now. That there is some kind of separation of the soul from the body at death, and the soul immediately goes to hell. So that is the predominant view, uh, but that's not the only view. The second view that I am going to cover is called universal reconciliation. And from what I can ascertain, I believe this is the least common view. Some of the early church fathers leaned towards this view, and they do believe that hell was a place of punishment. Um, Gehenna, or the lake of fire, was a place of punishment, but it was also a place of refinement and re-education, kind of like gold tried in the fire, and then out comes uh, pure gold. And so they believe that the wicked and the unbelievers would be thrown into hell where they would be punished, re-educated, refined, and then be spat back out or resurrected out of that and eventually be in the kingdom at a later time than people who made it in there uh, first and, and foremost. Um, so according to universalism or universal reconciliation, everybody will eventually be in the kingdom even though they get there at different times and at different stages. Some people even say or go so far as to say that Satan and his demons or his angels will also be reconciled to Yahweh in the end. The last view, and this is the view that I ended up taking after I did my study and my research, was annihilationism. Annihilationism is one of the names for this view. This view is also called conditional immortality. 
It's called conditional immortality because this view believes that man is not immortal in and of himself as a human being, but that immortality is a gift that Yahweh gives to the saved. So it's conditional upon whether or not someone is in Christ or in the Messiah and therefore righteous. So that's why it's called a conditional immortality. And annihilationism focuses on what takes place or happens to the wicked upon their being thrown into Gehenna, hell, lake of fire, however you want to term that. Uh, this is the middle ground of the other two views. Um, no one right now is judged permanently according to this view. No one, at least by some proponents of this view, including myself, no one is in the kingdom of heaven and no one is yet in the lake of fire. That might be uh, another study for a, a future sermon, but I believe in what sometimes people call soul sleep, whereby when someone dies, um, they actually die, uh, both the righteous and the wicked, and they have this uh, sleep of, of peace um, until the resurrection of the just and the unjust upon which they'll be judged those that are in Christ, those that have died in Christ will be resurrected to immortality. Those that have died outside of Christ will be judged, punished to whatever degree. I believe there are varying degrees of punishment and that punishment will result in death or annihilationism. They will cease to exist. So the righteous get eternal life and the wicked get eternal death. Of the three views that I learned, annihilationism seemed to line up more with scripture. And I remember in my studying of this, I came across two verses that I already knew and I already loved, and they seemed so clear to me, and I don't know why I had never saw them before. The first of which was Romans 6, verse 23, which says, and I learned this from a little boy, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord, or our Master. So, wages of sin is death can't mean the first death that we all die because I know a lot of people that are righteous and in the Messiah that have died in this body but the wages of sin is death has to be talking about the second death Revelation calls the lake of fire the second death well, uh, that's the wages of sin but the gift of Yahweh the gift of God is eternal life so the two options are death and life or life and death and then the same thing is in John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. There again, everybody perishes in from this body. You know, I've had loved ones that I loved greatly. They died. I saw the life go out of them. But what does John 3.16 mean about they shall not perish? It means they're not going to have to suffer the second death. When they are resurrected, if they died in Christ, they'll be resurrected to deathlessness, which is what immortality means, not able to die. And they'll live forever. So they'll have everlasting life versus perishing. Notice again, it's either perish or have everlasting life. And I remember I was like, man, scratching my head. Why didn't I see these verses before? They seem so clear to me. The next thing I did was begin to decide that I was going to study the Old Testament. What did the Old Testament say about hell? 
I was already deep into the Old Testament at the time because I was learning about Yahweh's law, how it had not been done away with, and how that Yeshua, Yahweh's son, said, don't even think that he came to destroy the law or the prophets. He did not come to destroy, but to fulfill or to establish. So I thought, well, let's see what the Old Testament has to say about hell. And what I found was that a lot of scholars, whether writing in a commentary or a dictionary, would tell us that the Old Testament doesn't have a lot to say about hell. They would say, well, it's mentioned uh, in one or, or two places, and we have to go to progressive revelation. See, I don't have a problem with progressive revelation. In other words, as we continue to read in Scripture, like in the apostolic writings commonly called the New Testament, I don't have a problem with those uh, blossoming our understanding of Old Testament Scripture or uh, giving us a clearer picture of something that might be cryptic, so to speak, in the Old Testament. Uh, but I do have a problem with uh, later revelation contradicting past revelation. I think on a subject as important as the final judgment, we ought to be able to find the truth of that in the Older Testament, or in Hebrew, the, the Tanakh, from the book of Genesis to the prophet Malachi. So what I found was the reason that scholars and theologians said that the Old Testament didn't have a lot to say about hell was because the Old Testament didn't have a lot to say about eternal conscious torment. The Old Testament didn't teach eternal conscious torment. But the Old Testament does have a lot to say about the destiny or the judgment of the wicked. So it wasn't so much that the Old Testament was silent. It's simply that it was silent on what most people believe about the future judgment of the wicked. So Yeshua pulled from the Old Testament when he used the word Gehenna. Joshua 15, Jeremiah 7, Valley of Hinnom. So why shouldn't we pull from the Old Testament when we're gathering our understanding of the destiny of the wicked, the judgment of the wicked at the final day? So I went to the book of Malachi. And I love the book of Malachi. Early on in my Torah walk, I focused on the end of the book of Malachi because in Malachi 4.4, 4, the last prophet of the Tanakh said, Remember the law of Moses. Don't forget the law of Moses. That was something that I saw that many Christians were doing. They were not remembering or forgetting the law of Moses. But I noticed something else in Malachi 4, verses 1 through 3. I'd like to turn there and read this. Malachi is the last book in our Old Testament, at least in our English Old Testaments, and the way that the Old Testament canon is placed. Malachi 4, beginning at verse 1. For indeed the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. I want you to know this is talking about a future judgment and it mentions burning like a furnace. That gives us a word picture that should relate to what we've learned about Gehenna, the fire of Gehenna, the smoldering uh, valley of, of fire, smoke coming off of it, the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. And it says everyone who commits wickedness and, the, and is arrogant will become stubble. That's another word picture. These word pictures aren't meant to be taken completely literally, but they are here to give us an idea or a picture of what happens to the wicked. And so when you see words like stubble, what does that make you think of? Does it make you think of eternal conscious torment? 
universal reconciliation or annihilation? You can ask yourself that question as we read. The coming day will consume them. There's another hint. Says Yahweh of hosts, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, here's the opposite people, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. So there's another word picture for the righteous. You've seen some calves, young calves, or even young kids, goats, uh, jumping around in the stall. They're all excited, and their uh, legs are young, and they're just having a good time playing around. That's the righteous. In verse 3 it says, You will trample, you as the righteous, will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes, another word picture, under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says Yahweh of hosts. So we see these word pictures here in Malachi 4, 1 through 3, and I kept seeing that the contrast here is life for the righteous and death or annihilation, destruction, for the wicked. So I wondered, are there any other Old Testament prophets that speak like this? And I found that, yes, there was. Another text that I had become familiar with as I turned there is the text of Isaiah chapter 66. In my Torah walk, I'd become familiar with this text because I heard a lot of people in the Torah community teach it in regards to teaching against the eating of the unclean things. Uh, in particular, swine's flesh, as the old KJV calls it. I think the World English Bible says pig meat. <laughs> so, in this prophecy in Isaiah 66, 15 through 17, it spoke about a future judgment. And I want you to look at it with me. It says, look, Yahweh will come with fire. Here again, think about fire. We had a burning furnace in Malachi 4. We've got valley of slaughter in Jeremiah 7. We've got Gehenna of fire in Matthew 5, 22. We've got lake of fire in Revelation. So, all of these, I think, are connected. Yahweh will come with fire. His chariots are like the whirlwind to execute his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For Yahweh will execute judgment on all flesh with his fiery sword and many will be slain by Yahweh. What does the word slain make you conjure up after you hear about a fiery sword? For me, it makes me think of death, think of destruction, annihilation. 17. Those who dedicate and purify themselves to enter the groves following their leader, eating meat from pigs, vermin, and rats, will perish together. So as I read that, I thought, well, this seems to line up with the final judgment being annihilation for the wicked. But notice what comes next in a few verses later, verses 22 through 24, as we finish the chapter out. Verse 22 says, For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make will endure before me, Yahweh's declaration, so will your offspring and your name endure. All mankind will come to worship me from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, says Yahweh. So here all mankind are all flesh, as I think it says in the KJV, is in reference to the righteous, not all flesh in reference to every single individual that has ever lived, but it's to the righteous. And I know that because in verse 24 it says, As they leave, they is the righteous ones that he just talked about, that their name will endure, their offspring will endure. As they leave, they will see the 
dead bodies, some Bibles say corpses, of the men who have rebelled against me, for their maggots will never die and their fire will never go out, and they will be a horror to all mankind. So when I saw this, I saw the righteous and the wicked and the wicked called dead bodies. But then I saw about the maggots not dying and the fire never going out. Now, a more literal translation of fire that never goes out is a fire that will never be quenched. And at first I thought, well, this might be talking about eternal conscious torment. But then I began to study the word quenched or unquenchable in the Bible, in both the Old and New Testaments. And I found that unquenchable fire didn't mean that the fire never went out, but that you couldn't put the fire out. Unquenchable fire means a fire of judgment whereby when Yahweh sends this fire, it does what He has designed it to do and no man can stop it. And the judgment will not be finished. The fire You can't put the fire out until it does what Yahweh would have it to do. So think about it in relation to like a forest fire, a big forest fire that gets out of hand and you can't stop it. It eventually will burn out on its own accord, but you can't quench it. You can't send out the fire quenchers or the firemen with their trucks. It's just too much for them to handle. And this is the fire of Yahweh's judgment. It's an unquenchable fire, meaning you cannot put it out. Um, doesn't mean it won't ever go out. And so I think the HCSB is taking a little bit too much liberty here in the translation. But what about the maggots that will never die? I think this is hyperbole. I think this is a figure of speech that talks about a maggot or a worm that is eating something that is trash, a dead body, refuse, things of that nature. That's what maggots do. Sometimes I'll find maggots in my garbage can outside because the trash in there decomposes and it's nasty, it stinks, and they, the maggots continue to eat. And the maggots never dying mean they continue to eat upon the refuse until there's nothing left to eat. Once again, it's just like the unquenchable fire. As long as there is something there to devour, the maggots will not die. So it's not the person here that is alive, but the maggot or the worm that is eating the dead body or the corpse. And it's not the person here that is described as unquenchable or never dying. But it's the fire that is unquenchable. You can't put the fire out. It will do what Yahweh has designed it to do. So I saw this text in Isaiah, and I saw the one in Malachi. I leaned at that point, already leaned towards annihilationism. And it didn't take very long. I was probably studying this maybe for about, I don't know, I don't know, maybe a month. And I was leaning towards annihilationism. And I thought, well, here is another doctrine that I used to think was accurate because of something I was taught, but I was never shown in Scripture why we believe in eternal conscious torment. And so now I'm starting to lean towards total annihilation and conditional immortality, that everybody's not immortal, but immortal is a gift for those who resurrect after they have died in Christ instead of outside of Christ. But I still had some questions. I still wondered about, what about this? What about that? What about uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? What about Revelation 14, Revelation 20, and tormented day and night, and the smoke of their torment, and all of that kind of things? And so in the next lesson, I'll begin to get into some of those questions. Um, 
I think we'll deal with more of the Old Testament before we get into those questions. See some, some types and shadows in the Old Testament of the future judgment. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, listen and hopefully learn some things from this uh, lesson. And you always will. Next week I will put up another video of uh, the second lesson in this series within a series on um, Is Hell Real? I hope I've given you some things to think about. Have a great day. Shalom.